Our Bible reading today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 to 20. And I will race you to find it. Towards the front? Thanks, Steve. Appreciate that. Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 20. It goes like this. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving to you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, and then let's talk about money and stewardship and everything the Lord has done and given us. Father God, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for everything that you have given to us and entrusted to us. We pray today that you open our hearts to what you have to say and open up your word to our hearts, and we pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I've been married for two years now, a little over two years, and one of my favorite parts of being married is that suddenly this whole range of abilities and things and powers are added to you as a single person. I no longer have to do my own tax return. It just happens. Uh, Sometimes meals appear when I am hungry. Clothes hang themselves out on the line and fold themselves when they are left on the couch. It's a level of convenience I haven't experienced since I lived with my mum. But conversely, My least favorite part of being married is there's a whole bunch of things that used to be mine and that used to be my domain and my stuff and my responsibility for which I now have a shared experience and not an exclusive one. Several times a week, I get into my car and I take off and I'm halfway down the street like a responsible motorist. I check my mirrors when I'm about to merge and I can see nothing (laughs) because my mirrors are all screwed up. And now that I think about it, my knees are like banging against the steering wheel. And why is the air con on heat when it is obviously hot weather? (laughs) What hypothermic gremlin has been joyriding in my car? Oh, it's the one I married. (laughs) And that's enormously frustrating and something as a married man to which I must slowly adapt. I have no choice. The part of my brain... There's a part of my brain that is telling me it's my car, she should put everything back the way that she found it when she gets out, and that part of my brain is wrong. Because it's not my car, because like every other married person, when I elected to marry this hypothermic gremlin, (laughs) I said some variation of unto thee all my worldly goods I pledge. 
That means that all these things which I considered mine, which I have brought into the marriage, have a higher purpose than serving me. They serve our home, they serve us. It's not my car, it's our car. I do not have a right to demand that she reset the car to my conditions. When she is done, she slides the seat forward and resets the mirrors and sets the air conditioning to fan bake. And when I complain about these things, it's only ever in a joking tone because I would uh, be a selfish idiot to think that marriage expected any less than this. And that's not a bad example to keep in mind as we move into a discussion about stewardship. The, the image of the church and everyone in it constituting this bride of Christ and therefore we have uh, everything and everything that we have being pledged to that relationship with God. It's not a completely precise comparison, obviously. We don't technically bring anything to our relationship with God that he hasn't first given us. Uh, that's why we call it stewardship, because a steward is a member of a, of a king or a wealthy person's staff uh, who, to whom wealth is entrusted for right use. But the way that we come to submit what we have to God, to become good stewards, comes from this sense that we are going to use for God what we might otherwise use selfishly for ourselves or for our own ambitions or our own projects. And so when I say things like giving to God or your money, don't come to me after the service and be, well, actually, God is the creator of everything in the world and you can't give away what isn't yours. Yes, okay, I get it, understand, but hear my words in the spirit they are intended. God has given us innumerable blessings, materially and financially and, and personally in the, in the currency of talents and time and gifts and all of these things are ours to steward in a lifetime in a way that serves and glorifies God and his kingdom. Now, if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, and that's news to you, this is going to be extremely confronting, and you are going to hate everything I am going to say, and I would love to talk to you after this sermon to hear how you disagree or agree with me. But most Christians know this to be true. We know that we owe everything to God. But, if you'll pardon the pun, how does that actually cash out in daily life? How much of what we've given, of what we've been given, do we give back? And how do we give back? And what does it all look like? It's this idea of stewardship, and uh, we're going to be talking more about that today. And I will mostly be focusing on the financial aspect of stewardship and giving. And most principles that you talk about with money can also be applied to everything else that we have, the possessions we have, the time we have, the talents we have, how we organize ourselves personally, not just financial things, in the service of God. But since money is the most confronting part and the part that Christians uh, are most often confused and divided about and the factor over which most fights in marriage occur and the, the source of anxiety for most people in the world and by some measures uh, the feature of life about which Jesus and the prophets most often spoke, we're going to focus on that part. So today I need to warn you that what we discuss here is not all the Bible has to say about money and about giving and about tithing and about those things. There's simply too much to do in a single sermon and probably even a sermon series is only going to scratch the top of it. If you're going to get wise about this stuff, you need to read books, to watch videos, to have conversations, to do Bible studies about money, about giving, about charity, about tithing. And if you don't, you are going to neglect becoming wise about a topic which the word addresses just as often or more often as it addresses marriage, kindness, righteousness, or any other topic with the exception of forgiveness itself. 
And when I say Christians are confused about money, I'm not trying to pontificate like an expert, uh, like everyone else is wrong and I have uh, the, the secret formula to understand all this. I'm saying that there is so much discussion about uh, what part wealth and giving and financial stewardship plays in life that there's no obviously unified Christian wisdom about the topic. And I want to look at two big ideas. And if we understand these two, I think we are going to be well on our way to having a good framework to investigate in our own time, to understand money and stewardship in a believer's life. And those two big ideas are up there now. Prosperity gospel versus poverty gospel and tithing and giving and keeping and how we organize our money in that way. And if you don't know what I mean by the first one there, prosperity gospel versus poverty gospel, well, here's a pair of quotes that will help illuminate that for you. First quote there, when you focus on a blessing, God makes sure that you are always blessed in abundance. That is from uh, wisdom from Lakewood megachurch leader Joel Osteen. I know some tortured and crucified apostles who might feel that statement is overly broad. Um, and contrast that as a prosperity promise below with a, uh, a statement from our good friend Pope Francis that poverty is the center of the gospel. And coming from the head of a church that commands something like a trillion dollars and who lives in the largest house in the world, poverty, you say. Ha ha, that's rich. Uh, yeah, there we go. Just a delayed impact. Um, <laughs> there are Christians who, are, who say and who continue to say that being poor is probably a sign of disobedience to God. And maybe they don't state it in that kind of direct sense. Maybe there's kind of more, uh, more, uh, more detail and, and, uh, and care in the way that they couch these things. But the boiled down idea of the prosperity gospel is that a Christian who is living right with God should usually be financially very well off because God blesses those who bless him. These Christians themselves are usually wealthy or have ambitions of wealth themselves. And there are Christians who say the opposite, who say that being rich is probably a sign of disobedience to God. These are Christians who are, unlike Pope Francis, uh, not often wealthy themselves. And mostly this split comes down to the fact, not that the Bible doesn't answer this question, but that the fact that... Um, the Bible has so much to say about money that if you don't devote time and care and prayer and brain power to studying it, you will absolutely end up twisting scripture to say what you want it to say and what justifies your position where you are. There are, for example, passages like Proverbs 10.22 that says, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. That is God-ordained scripture. It is spiritually inspired. It is there and we can't chuck it out. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. It's got to be true, at least in some capacity. And there's the story of Job, which features a man who plunges into destitution but remains faithful, and as kind of a reward for that faith, God restores him to an even greater wealth than he lost. There's the parable of the talents, where the reward for stewardship is stewardship over even more. Stewardship over small things goes to stewardship over cities. Wouldn't it be strange for Jesus to use an example of prosperity in a positive way if there wasn't something fundamentally positive about it? And when Jesus talks about 
How if we ask, we will receive, our Father will not deny us good gifts. Mr. Prosperity Gospel, we hear, we'll hear something like, just as my soul is being sanctified by God, and just as my mind is being discipled, and just as every part of my life goes from bad to good, as I am walking with God, so too my financial life must be a reflection of that blessing. And if it's not, then God may be testing me, or maybe there's something in my life that I need to deal with before God will bless me like that again. That's the prosperity gospel. Now, the opposite of the prosperity gospel, this kind of uh, movement about wealth, is what some people call the poverty gospel. And Mr. Poverty Gospel hates prosperity teaching. He can't stand it. If he hears someone whisper the name Joel Osteen, then you're in for a diatribe about private jets and rich Christians being the problem with the church. This is the view that money is a necessary evil for life, but it's an evil that we need to guard against. And money can so easily become an idol. And this is why the Bible so fiercely warns about just that happening. And there are verses like, blessed are the poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us a story about the afterlife in which Lazarus, the poor man, is dining with Abraham while a rich man suffers in punishment after death. And crowning them all is the old, very popular uh, saying of Jesus that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Someone who believes in the poverty gospel might think that wealth will be a blessing up to a certain point, but if you remain wealthy past a certain standard, then there's something wrong or greedy about you. You are serving money and not serving God. And we should not pray for wealth, but exclusively for our daily bread, for our contentment with what we have. Now, these are two very fundamentally opposing ideas about wealth. One sees it as a blessing from God to you, and then from you to be, to be stewarded and used uh, in righteous ways. The other sees it as a blessing of God exclusively for the use of uh, serving the kingdom and blessing others. And they both have Bible passages to support their positions and their convictions, and more relevant, uh, their present position in life. And the most infuriating thing about this is that the fact that the other guy does have Scripture on his side should tell you the situation is more complicated than just one or the other of these things. There are Bible verses that warn about the love of money and the folly of seeking wealth, and there are Bible verses that describe financial blessing and plenty as a blessing from God. And both of these things have to be uh, true because they are both scripturally endorsed. They have to be, otherwise... The Bible is wrong or else we have to understand them and interpret them in a wise way that makes them compatible. Simply enough, if your love of money causes you to stumble and make an idol out of wealth, if money is the true end of life and your reason to live, then you are sinning against God and you need to repent of your greed. And if someone else's wealth and what they buy and the holiday they take or the house they can afford drives you to distraction, then you are sinning against God and you need to repent of your envy. God blesses us diversely in different amounts. And what we need to know is not how much money a Christian should have, but how any of us as individuals, as individual families and households, should use whatever wealth God has given into our stewardship.
be it a lot of wealth or a little, be it 10 talents or one. And that brings us to the other part of this discussion about tithing and giving and keeping. And let's start with the big one first. Let's talk about tithing. Tithing can mean many things when Christians use it in conversation. Um, the strictest definition of this is uh, the act of regularly donating 10% of one's income to one's church. This is based on the Old Testament law about giving to the Levites. It comes out of Numbers 18, 21. Levites were the Israelite tribe who devoted their lives to maintaining the, the tent of meeting and later the temple, performing the sacrifices and the rituals, being the center of uh, spiritual life for the nation of Israel. And since their work was a full-time gig, the other tribes were to give a tenth of their, um, of their produce, of their harvest, to support the Levites and their work. And many traditional Christians translate this law as specifically applicable to the church in modern times. And that view would suggest then that a Christian must, to be walking faithfully with God, be giving 10% of their gross income, factoring everything they harvest to their local church. And furthermore, that is what they are required to give, though they may, of course, be more generous than that if they feel caused to do so. This is the, like the hard-line 10% of you of, of uh, giving to church, of tithing. Now, more often than that, I hear tithing used in a considerably looser fashion than that. And that, that idea of tithing is something like it's the act of donating some amount to some cause, which one feels is of interest to the kingdom of God. How much do you donate? Is it a percentage? Maybe. Is it to the church? Possibly. Like when I first started attending church, when I decided I needed to give, I made a rule that I would, I would just blindly, I would give whatever I happened to find in my wallet each week into the offering bag when it came around. And this was a very naive thing to do. I found myself very forgiving when I opened my wallet and found nothing. Sorry, God. And very annoyed with myself if I had absentmindedly gone to the ATM immediately before church. Um, and I would <laughs> God would have to pry it out of my hands with the crowbar of guilt um, to give that chunk of my network into the offering bag. Some people feel particularly drawn to a charity or a parachurch ministry, and they decide they'll give 5 or 10% of their income to Oxfam or Amnesty International or something, and that that will be their tithe. So the real question then boils down to two parts. How much and to whom? How much does God ask us to give from that which he has given us directly back uh, to his purposes? And to whom should that go? Like where should that be uh, deposited? Who should be entrusted as a kind of a secondary steward of that? And if we're using the Old Testament as a model, then the who must be the local church. It must be the church. Charity is encouraged and blessed, certainly, but uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament, they actually gave another tithe once every three years, shows up in Deuteronomy 14, which was for the poor and the foreigner and the needy. That was kind of a charity tithe that happened once every three years. And that was a 10% of their, of, their, of their harvest on top of the 10% going to the Levites. And on top, then again, of another 10% that was collected yearly that went to their festivals and, and, uh, and religious holidays. Uh, Imagine doing a community carols that was composed of 10% of the income of all the Christians in the area. That'd be pretty big. Um, 
But that's in addition to the temple tithe, I guess, is the idea. There's this giving to charity, this good, goodness giving, this good-hearted donation uh, to a good cause that serves the kingdom. is a kind of a separate discussion to giving to the church. Biblically speaking, there is no way to justify the idea that uh, I attend church, I expect to be spiritually fed there, I seek that, this is my community, these are my people, but financially, I give my money to God by sending it to a charity about which I feel more passionate than my church. And now some people have strong convictions about not giving to their church, and for the record, I am addressing the principle, not anyone specifically, I have no way of knowing how much anyone gives or how they do it. But some people will develop a conviction that because their church doesn't uh, prioritize one ministry or another, or because they have made one spending decision rather than the opposite, they don't want to support the way that church is using money, and therefore they refuse to contribute to it. And it's possible to have that conviction from a, a, at least a, a baseline genuine place, but someone who can't bring themselves to give to the church they attend they consider themselves a part of. They've identified there's a barrier between themselves and the way that they worship God. And if you are feeling so alienated from church that you can't bring yourself to contribute to it, your first priority should be to find a church that you can support and attend it and participate in its life and to form a relationship with its members and to love its people and uh, its preachers and its projects and to contribute to it with your tithe. You should support the church that you feel supports you. But to attend a church and then to direct uh, your tithe, your giving elsewhere is like going to a restaurant with friends but then refusing to split the bill because you don't like the waiter or the manager or because you're really passionate about an entirely different restaurant and you're saving your money for them. All you're doing is foisting the bill off onto the other people who are there. And being part of a church community is about being invested in it with your life. It should be a place where you are happy to be, uh, where you want to use the skills and talents that God has given you, where you want to spend uh, some of the time and devote some of the money that God has entrusted to you to be a steward. And if that doesn't describe your relationship to church, then man, you are missing out. And you have to either sink your teeth into this place or find a church that you can love and give to with that kind of devotion, because the Christian life is so much better when you are woven into your church the way that God intends on all these levels. So that's the to who question, the to whom question of tithing. It is to the church, but the next question is how much? How much does a church, uh, or how much does God, I should say, expect? What's the biblical mandate about that? And that's complicated. Because in the Bible, there is a yearly tithe to the temple, to the Levites, and uh, that of the triannual tithe for the poor. There's the yearly tithe for the festivals and feasts. So Israelites ended up giving something like 23.3% of everything they made every year um, to something uh, that was at the core of their society. But they were giving produce and not money, and that's a little different. And these laws were established for God's people in a different age, not a modern Western nation. That's a little different. There's all sorts of disconnecting factors as to why the 10% number might not be particularly applicable. So how much does God actually ask us to give? The glib answer is, all of it, everything belongs to God. Yes, but how much of everything that belongs to God that he has given to us, does he ask us to put into an offering bag or an e-tithe or something like that? 
And the real biblical truth that can't be avoided is there is no official God-ordained number beyond the fact that whenever biblical characters in the Old Testament make a spontaneous offering to God, they give one-tenth. Ten percent then seems like maybe a wise place to start thinking about it, but if you've prayed and you've come to a comfortable conviction that you're going to give five percent or some other number, then that's fine. Ultimately, this is a transaction between you and God, and that is the heart of tithing as a principle. In truth, God doesn't need our money. He spoke the world into being. He doesn't need us to spot him at 20 until next Tuesday. He is the God of blessings in God's church. This church or any other church doesn't need your money, not really. We work for God, and if he wants a church to be wealthy and prosperous, no power on earth could prevent it from becoming so. But the power of giving is not the gift, but the act itself. 2 Corinthians 9.7, which I hope is up there, um, says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's really the heart of it. The act of giving itself is good for the giver. It promotes a generous heart. It makes you kinder. It changes and improves your personality because it makes you personally live out and enact the truth that I value the kingdom of God more than I value my money. It's about the sanctification of our spirit and the habit that makes us resistant to worldly distractions. And all the other questions are interesting, but you can decide the answers for yourself free in the conviction that if you come to contentment in your heart about this matter, if you are not giving out of guilt, if you can give cheerfully, then God loves you for it, and that's what he requires of you. Do I tithe gross income or take-home pay? It doesn't matter. Be a cheerful giver. Do I tithe my tax return since it's been money that's already been tithed once? Doesn't matter. Be a cheerful giver. Shelley and I were working on this one the other day. When you are paid by an employer in Australia, you get paid your salary and your wage, or your wage, uh, your taxable income, and then your employer pays a separate 9.5% of that into your superannuation account. If you want to pay a true 10% tithe, do you pay before taxes, after taxes, or before taxes from a value equal to 109.5% of your taxable income? Or do you immediately pay a lump sum of like 10% of your super once you receive it after you retire? That's probably very boring to most people hearing this. Um, it's really interesting to me. But fortunately, the answer is, doesn't matter. Be a cheerful giver. And so that's tithing, and that should feature as a priority in our lives as believers. And beyond that, in the areas of giving, or alternatively uh, not giving and keeping uh, for ourselves, having a, a generous spirit and being generous, that's a kind of follow-through to the rest of our lives. And first and foremost, uh, in those areas, we feel passionate about or convicted to give and support. And if a willingness to give cheerfully is God's standard for giving to him, then we can reasonably apply that to how we should be giving to other causes. That means a couple of things. It means, first, that we should feel the freedom and liberty not to beat ourselves up when we have to decline giving to one cause or another. Because there, is not, <laughs> because there are a lot of causes and organizations and efforts who could really use your charitable donation. So many 
that if you gave to them all, they would bleed you dry immediately. So many of you are going to have to prioritize those you can give to and those you can't, and you will have no peace in this world unless you can uh, shake the hand of the Doctors Without Borders pitch man that you accidentally made eye contact with at Calumbell Central and tell him, sorry, I appreciate your cause, but I've already budgeted out my giving. God does not place on your requirement to liquidate your net worth and live in destitution because someone else could indeed use your charity. He doesn't even call on you to live at a bare minimum of necessities and give the rest away. He does call on you to love your neighbor and to cultivate in yourself a generous heart. If part of your relationship with God is reckoning with him how much and how often to give to the causes that move you, how much to spend on your family home, to set towards retirement, to set up as an inheritance for your grandkids. If God is involved in every step of that decision-making, then you are doing stewardship right. And no one has a right to coerce you or drive you by guilt to step beyond that. Conversely, the second thing this means is that another person's giving is ultimately between them and God. And we do not have the right to sullenly and enviously judge someone else for how they use their money. Even if they have a lot of it, even if we think we could use it better. And no one likes this part because it's fun to strike at tall poppies in Australian culture. But the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, servants, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to him. That means that we as followers of Jesus do not have a right to judge how another individual dispenses with the wealth with which they have been blessed. I don't get to decide that someone shouldn't have bought such a nice car. They should have bought a lesser car and, and given to missions, or they should have had a smaller TV and adopted another compassion child. The way in which we give is between us and God, and covetousness is a cancer that poisons us from the inside out. Proverbs 14:30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And truer words have never been written. And the envy of someone else's wealth is just as destructive to the believer as greed for one's own. We need to be intentional about the way that we give and that we tithe. We need to pray for wisdom about it in our families. We need to talk about it in our connect groups. Because Jesus and the scripture writers speak about money and giving endlessly. And when we're called to account for how we lived and how we use that which we were given, it won't matter how much anyone else had. Only our faithfulness as stewards will count. Let's pray. Father God, all that we have we owe to you and we know that. Help us to live like we know it, towards each other and in the sight of the world. Be with us as we strive to be wise stewards of the wealth that you give us, big or small. And not only wealth, but also the time and the talents and all manner of blessings, Lord. Convict us if we are being unwise and especially if we are sinning against you by some way we are using what we have. Change us if we need to be changed, Lord. Give us the heart of generosity that you would have us have. Give us the cheer with which we can give. 
We thank you, Lord, for all you've given us. And we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.